In her book, Lemons on Friday, Maddie Jackson Selectman chronicles her healing journey after losing husband Ben at 28 years of age to a tragic accident just three weeks before their first wedding anniversary. Choosing trust over understanding, Maddie found hope and purpose through writing and also music in a special collaboration with her dad on the song Racing the Dark. So let's talk about Ben, who he was, his personality, and what made you fall in love with him? So I tell people now, I mean, I think every time I still am asked about him or share a story about him, it's it's hard not to physically smile because he just was one of the most joyful, electric, and contagious, charismatic people I've really ever known. Really just had this, I always call it childlike faith about him, not because it was simple, but because it was what I think Jesus wants our hearts to be toward him, which is just trusting and accepting and grateful and excited and just kind of like not too mature to revel in the, you know, profound work of grace and what he's done. And and he had that disposition really toward everything. My family jokes about the fact that whatever he did or, or had or experienced or ate was phenomenal. Like that was his work. Like it could literally be a turkey and cheese sandwich and he would be like phenomenal sandwich. Just the fervor and like gratitude and excitement that he brought to life made him very easy to fall in love with and made him a person that just drew other people in. And we went to the same college, University of Tennessee, but we met after college through a a good mutual friend. And I talk about it in the first chapter of the book, just so everybody knows, you know, more of our story. But it was kind of a laughable, relentless pursuit on his end and ended up basically just asking me so many times that he wore me down. And (laughs) I relented and went and and just remember sitting there like on that first date and being like, man, why did I resist this? And just feeling so comfortable and connected to him immediately. And we, from there, had a very quick romance and dated about 10 months and then were engaged for a year and then got married in the fall of 2017. And, you know, it it just was this very fast, passionate, like, just felt very God ordained and easy. You know, now looking back, I'm so grateful for that kind of fast time frame, because it gave us the most time as possible together before I lost him really tragically, which is the catalyst for this whole book, grieving our marriage and, you know, his very sudden death at 28 and sort of just walking through what the last, it's been three and a half years now, what the last three and a half years have looked like for me, practically, spiritually, sort of in all of the above. I think there's an element of celebration that comes easily when you lose someone that has that sort of vibrant personality because you miss them even more because their presence was so big. But also, he's a very easy man to celebrate. And now that I'm several years down the road, I feel really grateful for that. And I love how you mentioned how he was just pure in his faith. He just trusted. Definitely. His big verse, he had like three things that he prayed every day for us. And his verse was Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And he really did that. Which is such a gift because I know for myself, that's one of the things that I'm working on right now. It's like you were saying earlier with the dating thing, just trusting that everything is going to work out the way it's meant to. And you resist so much. I find myself like, I know I'm supposed to obey you, but how sure are you that I'm supposed to do this? Yeah, And right. then you go and do it. 
And you're like, oh, why didn't I do that earlier? Like that was so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that first year of grieving, it was almost like you had a one-two punch because your wedding anniversary, Thanksgiving, and Christmas were all within the first three months after Ben passed. How were you able to navigate those first months? I wanted so badly to have some sort of guidelines or steps or kind of instructions of some sort, I mean, (laughs) to navigate it. Like I wanted someone to tell me how to do that because Mm -hmm. it felt like maybe if I have a little control or I have a plan or something, you know, I can handle this better. And like, that just isn't possible. That was one of the harder things, but one of the most foundational things I had to learn in grieving is that I write in the book, the only way to navigate it is that you can't navigate it at all. And you have to accept that because the way that grief happens truly is just one sort of tidal wave after the other. And a lot of times, especially early on, you know, it's hard to predict when triggers will happen and it's hard to predict what things or conversations or songs or parties or whatever will hit you in a way that really knocks the breath and hope out of you. And it just feels very erratic. Like everything feels like chaos and sort of like a storm that you don't know how to pacify or like when the worst of it's going to hit. And so it really is more of a 24 hour at a time survival. I mean, all of grief is that's the resounding sort of advice that I give people now, but particularly early on it had to be literally 24 hours at a time, especially, you know, with all of those big holidays and anniversaries and things like that, that did happen for me so quickly. Back to back, I've experienced more anxiety leading up to those days than sometimes even the actual days themselves and would just put myself in a spiral and in a panic, you know, how am I going to feel? What are we going to do? Like, am I going to make this and just worry myself to death, which is impossible not to do. But it sort of taught me right off the bat that thinking ahead and trying to figure things out and like needing answers to questions that are a month or two or a week or two down the road isn't helpful (laughs) when you grieve. You literally have to wake up in the morning and say, you know, what is in front of me today? What's the high and low point of what I'm feeling? And like, what do I need from God? And what do I need from other people? And just like you said, as we started, kind of trust that you really can survive another 24 hours and pour into yourself whatever you need to endure one more. And I mean, I just like have clung to the verse in Lamentations that says God's mercies are new every morning. And I really, in a practical, literal way, experience that being true. Like he'll give you enough for a day. And at the end of the day, whether it's a holiday or a birthday or a Tuesday, you will probably feel depleted by the end of the day and think there's no way I can do this tomorrow. And yet when we come to him, his mercies are new every morning. So It was a hard lesson to learn for me, but what I walked out of that first fall with is there's no reason, if I can help it, to succumb to all of the anxiety about a certain day when that day is going to pass, come and go just like every other one. And if I can just try to be present and be as kind to myself in 24-hour doses, then I'll be kind and gentle to myself and get through the big days with God and with my people too. It's a hard thing to do because you just want to be out of the throes of it as quick as you can. And it's just not a quick process. Definitely with grief and trauma in general, but also we're kind of a society that wants answers. Let's fix this quickly as possible. And life doesn't work that way. 
No, it doesn't. And that, that was a huge part of my struggle at first. And um, a huge part of my healing is that, you know, when anything you don't plan for or you don't want happens in your life, and particularly something of this tragic nature, like there's a thousand questions. Like I remember sitting down and being like, my life is nothing but question marks at this point. Like in the present, in the future, I have no sense of certainty or stability or control. And I just feel like I'm floating around Mm -hmm. in this world full of question marks. You know, a lot of those, if you are a person of faith, become directed at God. And the hardest of those being, where are you in this? And I write a lot about that in the book, grappling with where are you? Why did this happen? Why our marriage? You know, I'm not a pastor or a theologian, but I talk about my experience with God dealing with this in my heart is if you're really completely good and you're really completely sovereign or in control, did you cause Ben's death or did you just allow an accident to happen in a broken world? Because it has to be one of the two. So, you know, grappling with that, you want the answer, but it ultimately came down to a point where I was reading, I will never forget the beginning of the book of Job. It was like for a Bible study or something that my girls group was doing And obviously knew the story, but I was reading the very beginning where it's legitimately a conversation between God and Satan. Satan's like, this guy's only super faithful to you because nothing bad's ever happened to him. And God basically gives him free reign on Job's life and says, you can do anything but kill him. Mm -hmm. And I read that and was for the first time truly furious and like yelled out like in tears. Like, was this the conversation that was had about me? Is this why my husband died? Is this why you let my marriage go? Because you gave Satan free reign to my life. And it was in that moment, not that God gave me an answer, even though that's really what I thought I wanted. The answer became, it doesn't matter. You're mine. I am with you. I will heal you. Ben is perfectly in heaven with me. The answer isn't going to do any good for you. You just need to be present with me and trust me and let me heal you. And that's, I think, the absolute hardest choice to make in grief, because it's a choice, is if you believe in a good and sovereign God, like I do, at some point, you either harbor bitterness toward him and create distance because you want an answer for what happened that he could have stopped, or you choose to trust a God that may not give you an explanation, but truly can begin to heal your heart. That was the point where I got all of my anger out about it and ended up realizing that the way toward life and the way toward healing was not to demand answers, but was to choose trust over understanding. And that was a tremendous point for me. That's so powerful because like we were saying earlier, we want answers. We want to know why something has happened, especially because it's so tragic and so unexpected. Well, and I will say every ounce of what I just said is true, but if it sounds like hyper-spiritual to people, I will also say there was a big part of me after that where I very practically thought, okay, even if handwritten note from God mailed with a heavenly stamp that said, Hey, these are the 15,000 reasons why I allowed this to happen that are going to be good and the ramifications of the world. It wouldn't change anything because Ben would still be gone and I would still be heartbroken and I would still have to lean on the Lord to heal my heart and for me to learn to live without him. And so I say that to say, don't 
feel overwhelmed and feel like, oh, I don't have enough faith to trust God. I mean, truly, practically think about if, if you had the answers to all of the why questions, would anything about the circumstances and your heartbreak and your healing change? Because it wouldn't. Right. You touched on this a little bit, but what aspects of your faith were challenged during this time? It was really, obviously, the most significant thing I've ever had to learn to surrender to God. That was a huge theme of the book. I don't know that I ever experientially understood what it meant to actually surrender something to the Lord, meaning it's not just accepting and giving up. It's saying, I hate that this happened. And I trust that it's in your hands and everything about my grief and my pain and my emotions that I want to control and try to handle on my own and do my way, I admit is not going to work. And I need your guidance and your strength and your grace in this 24-hour time frame to handle these things. I mean, I had a paper on my bedside table and it was very practical things. It was everything from, you know, bird's eye view Lord, I surrender the fact that I still want a marriage and a family and I surrender that to you for someday down the road to very small things of like, Lord, I have to figure out our bank stuff and cancel the credit cards today and I just need you to help me get through that. It just became a practice. And I'll tell you, every morning that I feel super connected to God and like 100% all in, like I trust you for all of this, I'm surrendering all this to you. No, some days I didn't feel that. But I got in a habit and rhythm of doing that. And it just felt like this sense of relief that my survival and my resilience and my healing is not ultimately on my shoulders. And that reminder at the start of every day sort of felt like it lifted a burden off and let me be a little more free to just learn how to manage my emotions and you know, not feel like I was responsible for getting my own life back on track. Yeah. So surrender was a huge part of that, that I had never really understood or practiced before. And then, you know, it dramatically affected, I think, how I understand prayer and like what that means and how it looks in my day to day life. Because, you know, I think we can sometimes struggle with there's a sense of pressure to pray a certain way or at a certain time or not that it needs to be formal, but maybe people think like, I don't really know scripture to like pray back to God, or I don't have enough time to be still and quiet with my eyes closed in a sacred space for 10 minutes because I have three kids. And you know, there's just so many things that I think we project this formality. And I had a, another woman who I did a interview with asked me, how has prayer changed for you? And I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but it sort of came to mind of When I used to pray, I think I sort of thought of it as like writing a formal letter to God. Like I would sit down, what are the things I'm grateful for? What are the things I'm struggling with? What are the things I need from you? And sort of try to polish it in a way that not was impressive, but I guess was reverent and stamp it off and mail it to God. And that's sort of how it felt. And it's like once I lost Ben and I was so broken and desperate for God to be present with me all the time. It's like I went from writing him formal letters to like sending him texts and Snapchats. It was like he was constantly 
a part of my day and I didn't feel this obligation to clean up my prayers. I didn't feel the obligation to be in a sacred quiet space. I could just be driving my car or walking or cooking or doing anything and I would just call out to him as needed. And I think that that is such a more authentic and genuine way of communicating with him. And I think it felt more intimate. Like he began to feel more like a friend that I constantly had on speed dial. Mm. So it, it definitely changed the way that I understand prayer. I love that analogy so much because you think of prayer and you think, oh, it has to be this formal thing. I have to say the perfect thing. There's so many expectations, but it's like if you just say what's on your heart and just it, it can be messy. It can be, you know, you can be bursting into tears, but that's the realness of it. 100%. And actually, just for anyone listening, after the acknowledgments and stuff, there's an appendix of prayer prompts back where I write sort of what is prayer really and then give some scriptures and subsequent prayers with those scriptures just for people to read aloud to God or take and then apply their own, you know, words to. Because I know, especially in grief, it's really hard. Like your mental capacity is drained. It's just very hard to make words and sentences in general. And so prayer can be very difficult. That's one of my favorite parts of your book, actually, because I am that person. I do sometimes find things are so heavy and there's so many emotions that I haven't sorted through that it's like, I don't even know what to pray for. Yeah. And so I love that part of your book. Thank you. I think it was a good addition, hopefully a good resource for people. So you've written this lovely book called Lemons on Friday, which we've been talking about, where we get to learn more about Ben and the love you shared. Was there a sense of readiness to share your story? There was. The way that the book began was never intentional. It was strictly my journaling to try to process my feelings and my questions and my anger and my fears and all of the things. I've always wanted to be a writer and it's what I studied in college. So I think there was a part of me that always hoped that this could turn into something to help other people, but it certainly was not the original intent. And then about a year to a year and a half after Ben died, I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors. It's a tiny little book called A Grief Observed, and he wrote it after he lost his wife to cancer pretty suddenly as well. And it is essentially just his heart and his stream of consciousness about grief, about pain, and about God's hand in that and what does faith look like through it. I'll never forget reading it and just like, I mean, I've got it on my desk right now because I'm using it for a little project, but like almost every other page is like dog eared down and sitting there thinking, okay, if this guy who lived, I'm going to botch this, but 50 to 100 years ago, who was an Oxford theologian, I can sit here a year after I've lost my 28 year old husband and read his words and finally feel like someone has actually sat where I've sat and felt what I've felt. And I don't feel so alone in this anymore. What if people who would never read C.S. Lewis could learn about what I've gone through and feel this scene and this hopeful, you know, that I can get through this. And so, you know, that's how the book came about. So at that point, I went back through my journals and things and sort of just sat down and tried to see like, what are the main things I'm struggling with? What are the main things I'm asking? And could any of this be sort of coherently compiled into a book and started working on that and kind of writing and adding to and then clearly God's hand was in it and we got a publisher and you know, from there we were off to the races. When I started writing it, I don't know that my heart was as ready as it needed to be. But I knew that there was power in sharing this story. Mm. 
in my spirit, it seemed to be confirmed that this was the Lord's plan for this. And so I think a lot of my healing came through the writing process. So when I started, I probably wasn't ready, even though I thought I was. And then by the end, it had been so therapeutic that speaking about it and doing promotion and doing podcasts, I felt very ready for that. I love the beautiful progression of that. You didn't feel ready or your heart wasn't ready, but you just did it anyway. I think that goes back to the trust we were talking about. It's like, I trust that this is going to help someone. Yeah. Because you were talking about anxiety earlier and we can be like, okay, but what if this happens? Okay, but what if this happens? And like 95% of the time, none of those things that you think will happen actually happen. Yeah. Well, and I would encourage people too, like with the caveat of I tend to move too quickly into things because I am an achievement oriented person. And there was about a six month time frame where at the year mark when I read the C.S. Lewis, it had a very clear stop sign from the Lord and like, you're not ready. You need to wait. And for about six months, I sort of like battled <laughs> him <laughs> on that and then eventually felt like, okay, go ahead. You know, we're ready to do this. And even at that point, throughout the entire writing and editing process, even though I felt so strongly that this is how God wanted to use our story, I kept thinking, why would anyone care? Like, why does anyone want to hear this? Not the whole story, but there are so many stories in the book that felt very mundane and like silly to me. And I even told the editors, like, should we take this out? Like, this is kind of dumb. Nobody's going to care about this. And without fail, the stories that I thought were silly are the ones that people ask about and resonate with the most. So I say that to say, if you feel hesitant or you don't feel spiritually equipped or emotionally equipped to share something you're going through, if you are praying about that thing and the Lord is nudging you to do it, he will give you everything that you need. And like, you probably won't feel equipped most of the time, but it is remarkable to watch what he does with things that don't feel significant to you when it's your story. Don't undervalue what you're going through. And it may not be a book, but like there are people in your life, your work, in your neighborhood, and your relationships that could need so desperately one nugget of your story and you have no idea. And just like that's how God works. Like don't be fearful if you don't feel equipped to share. Just the whole message, Estella, that I kept getting from God was just tell the truth about your story and tell the truth about who I am and I'll do the rest. Like don't try to make it perfect. I love that so much. And I relate to that so much because I was basically, when when I was growing up, I had all these great ideas and then I would either be dismissed or judged for them. So then that evolved into me judging myself as an adult. And so I had a lot of walls up. But as soon as I started to break down those walls, so like two years ago, it's going to be two years in March, the tornadoes in Nashville mm -hmm. took out the home I was living in. And it was the biggest thing that I had ever been through. And I needed help, but I was still resistant to ask for help because, oh, I don't have it as bad as other people. Other people's situation is worse. Mm. Why do I feel like, you know, I should be asking for help when I should be helping other people? Right. That's what that was my mindset. It was easier when people offered help. Sure. That was so much easier to receive it. But what I learned out of that experience is my voice does matter. My feelings are valid. Man, yes. Every voice and story matters. Like it is so powerful. Yeah. It is so powerful.
And that became the catalyst for this podcast. And I'm literally using my voice to <laughs> empower people because I was initially resistant to even doing a podcast. I was like, no, nobody wants to hear my story. Nobody, it, my story's not worthy enough. It's not valuable enough. And God was like, oh, you don't think it's valuable enough? Here you go. 2020 happened and like 10 traumatic things happened that year. And it was like, where was I thinking I wasn't worthy of sharing my story? And every <laughs> single time, like you were saying, I would share something vulnerable and I would be scared that people would judge me for it. People didn't judge me for it. They were like, oh my gosh, I feel this so deeply. Yes. Yes. Amen. Because when you trust God is leading you and you take that step and you share that story, yeah, people respond to that. Yeah. And on a very practical level, like what is the Bible? The Bible is a collection of stories of screwed up and suffering people that God carries through something. <laughs> Nothing about those stories are polished. <laughs> and so it's like, why would our lives not be of equal worth in telling those sort of stories and like giving that sort of hope? Oh my gosh, I love that so much. What I love about Lemons on Friday is that you think someone has written a book on grief and loss, so it must be very heavy, dark, and even maybe depressing, but your book isn't. It's so warm, encouraging, and hopeful. You definitely don't shy away from sharing the heavy moments and emotions you were feeling, but you don't get that gloom and doom feeling from reading your book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was a huge concern of mine that when you are in a place of grief, it's hard to see hope in your life. It's hard to see hope for your story and your circumstances sometimes. And the two things that I wanted so badly to feel in especially the first year or so was hope. And I had to often look to other people, in my case, other widows ahead of me to see their healing and to see their progress and to see the stability that had found its way back into their life because I couldn't imagine, you know, that for my life at the time. And I, I wanted to feel hope from other people. And I also wanted to be validated in all of the horrible experiences and emotions that I was feeling. And so I feel like, I mean, that's kind of two sides of the same coin, but I needed people to speak into me. Yes, what you were feeling, I remember, and this is how it played out in my life. And this is how I handled it well and not well. But here's where I promise you're going to get. And so that is the tension that I tried to hold throughout the book in never letting go of the hope because God redeems literally everything if we let him, mm -hmm. but also not letting my faith act as a sugar coating to something that is the most tragic thing I've ever experienced. You have to hold the hope and the hurt equally and, and not let one outweigh the other, but learn to let them coexist. And, and that's a really hard balance. Yeah. Another thing I love about your book is the humor you peppered throughout, like <laughs> your turkey hunting story. That was one of my favorite parts of your book. I laughed hysterically when I read that. Will you please grace us with a description of your first impressions about turkey hunting? Honestly, that was one of the stories where I was like, if someone is not a hunter, like they're not going to care about this at all. I think you're right. I think there's a needed element of humor in that. But yeah, I mean, you know, Ben was a, a huge hunter. He grew up in East Tennessee and, you know, all of his family grew up going to the mountains and hiking and fishing and hunting and they're just big outdoor people. And so am I. I mean, so is my dad. He's a big fisherman and we've always had farms and animals and stuff, but he never has hunted. So that was sort of a new experience for me. And so I'm talking about in one of the chapters about my first experience turkey hunting with Ben. 
for those who don't know, turkey season is mostly in April. So it's not like frigid, but it's April. So it's kind of like cold, wet spring mornings. Mm -hmm. And I just talk about going and this overwhelming joy and excitement that he had to get up at four o'clock in the morning in the pitch black dark. It's probably like 35 degrees and we're tromping around all over this farm, like no idea where we are. And it just, everything about my attitude was just not (laughs) positive because it's uncomfortable and it's cold and you have to be quiet and there's a lot of waiting and I don't know what's going on and for what it's worth. Turkeys are pretty terrifying looking animals. Like if you really get close to them, they're with their big blue, like guzzler things. They're kind of scary looking. And I just talk about, it sort of is a commentary on perspective and how like valuable your perspective can be because we were both sitting in the same gully with the same rocks and sticks and wet grass in our back and the whole thing. And I was there sort of complaining about how, you know, it was uncomfortable and I'm so impatient, so it's hard to wait. And Ben was sitting there grinning ear to ear, basically feeling like it was this moment with like him and God in creation. And he literally is there just to watch the world wake up is what he would always say. And so while it was really funny, it was a comical experience when we went together, it became something that totally shifted my understanding of really nature as a whole and like the sort of holy presence of God that you can experience in nature, particularly in my grief when I didn't feel like I had spiritual and mental capacity to pray or read scripture or even go to church because that was really painful for a long time. And nature became a really sacred place for me to just see God's hand in the world. And if I could trust God to manage creation, then I could trust God to manage my mess and my grief. And A lot of that I learned from several years of living life with Ben. And it started sort of with the funny turkey experience. And I think too, you know, something you and I have talked about is I haven't been hunting a tremendous amount since he's died, but I did very intentionally on certain occasions go do that. And I would encourage everyone, if you've lost someone and there's something that is dear to them, even if it's so foreign to you, there is a real sense I mean, it's very painful to be in those places because it's so evident that they should be there with you. Mm -hmm. But there is a sweetness and this miraculous connectivity that comes when you have the courage to do that. And I I would just encourage you, whatever it is. I started playing golf after Ben died because, again, he loves the outdoors and he loved golf and we never did it together. And I'm not very good, but it's something that it's a sweet thing that I can do and know that he would be glad that I'm getting to enjoy this thing that he, you know, loved. And so I would, I encourage people to do that. It's hard, but it's very rewarding. And I think it's a sweet part of the healing process. Absolutely. I feel like that connectivity, even though he's not physically here, like that's a way for you to continue moving forward. Definitely. And bring him with me. There was a big part of me that was so afraid for so long you know, once I quote unquote heal, once I, you know, move out of our house or at whatever point down the line, start dating again. And all these things that are sort of like benchmarks for moving forward in my life. Am I going to lose the impact that our marriage had? And am I going to forget about the things that, you know, were a part of his and I's day-to-day life? And and you don't, I mean, it's, it's a valid fear and there's no way to like explain or understand how you can carry someone with you, but it just works if you take those efforts to go back into the spaces they loved and do the things that they love to do. It just, it feels like a sweet little way to commune with them and go back to your place with that person for a little while. 
Mm -hmm. And I love that you can find pockets of joy. Yes. You know, throughout every day, even if it's just 24 hours at a time. Definitely. Like finding those pockets of joy really help the healing process. They do. And that's what I hope people hear me say. Like, I talk a lot about pain and joy in the same moments in the book because it was a phenomenon that I just had never experienced. And I don't use that word lightly because I can't explain how I could be weeping watching our wedding video three weeks after he died on our anniversary, but also be so joyful to get to hear his voice and see him move around a room again. There's just something in grief. When we push past the bounds and the depths of the painful emotions, we also increase the bounds and the depths of all the good emotions too. I don't know how to explain it or describe it. It's a miraculous thing. But it's like when you don't try to numb or resist the depth of your pain, it's like there's a deeper richness of joy and gratitude and all the positive emotions you get to feel even more deeply too. And you almost appreciate them more. You do. I do. I mean, can't speak for other people, but I do. Same with me. One of my favorite things I took away from your book was how you describe God's human qualities. We hear a lot about how going through trauma and any kind of adversity draws us closer to him. But I love how you said God also allows suffering so our roots can grow deeply to withstand future storms. That was the most difficult chapter to write from a biblical perspective. Like I said, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I can't answer why does God allow suffering? You know, the ultimate question that everyone asks. But what I share in that chapter is what the suffering he has permitted in my life has done for my faith. And the two main things that it has done is what I call, and you reference deep in the roots, which is essentially just circles back to trust again. Mm -hmm. When you continue to choose trust over understanding, you grow more rooted and more stable in the promises of God and, and less likely to be knocked down when another bad thing happens. You, you're just a little more sturdy in your faith. And then the second part, which I think you're talking about, is that you just get to know his heart better. It's really like any human relationship. You certainly bond a lot over, you know, your shared likes and shared positive experiences. But you think about the people who you know their heart best and you feel the most safe and vulnerable and secure with are a lot of times the people you go through hard things with. And I think that is one of the most beautiful parts of suffering is that when we do it with the Lord, we learn more about his tenderness and kindness and adoration of us. I mean, I just know now like God cherishes me because he was so close to me and so gentle with me and so kind with me. Yeah. And I love the bond that happens when you do go through something difficult with other people, whether it's like the support around you or you're both going through similar situations. I just think that that's so powerful that you have that support. Oh, it is. And that just goes right back to having the courage to share your story, because that's the way that we sort of endure hardship together is breaking what feels very isolating. You know, like pain feels very isolating until you realize that a thousand other people have felt the same way and they've survived. And how are you going to know that if you don't share your story? Totally. You were talking about having support from other widows and learning from them. Will you share a little bit about your upbringing and how your parents helped you in your healing? Yes. 
I am so thankful to have grown up in and around the church and a Christian home and Christian school. And I think that foundation is invaluable. But I also know to the roots analogy that until I had to personally face the questions of, okay, all these things that I believe in my head that I've always said I believed when the rubber meets the road, how real and active and reliable and trustworthy do I think God is in my day-to-day life and in my heartbreak and in this pain and in my healing? In order to sort of ask those questions, it was crucial for me to have my family and my friends and those faithful widows in front of me because those are, I mean, those are really hard questions to ask. So you wrote a song with your dad. How did that come together? And what was the process like working with him on the song Racing the Dark? It was so fun. It was so unexpected and (laughs) kind of unintentional, truthfully, which is kind of makes it a better story. I don't play music. I love music. I always have. I love writing. And during the summer of 2020, when all the pretty severe quarantine and lockdown stuff was happening, I had a couple single girlfriends who we sort of hold up together. And one of them's a good guitar player. And she's playing my guitar because I have one, but I can't really play it very well. And she said, I can't believe you've never written a song. And I said, well, I can't play music. And she's like, but you know how songs are structured. It sort of like put that little seed in my head. And as it got closer to September, or we were coming on the two-year anniversary of Ben's passing. You know, I said, I'll just give it a shot. Like, I, I do know how songs are structured. So I sat down and sort of just let whatever was stirring in my heart pour out. And it ended up being this story, not necessarily my story, but a story who had lost her husband and, you know, was trying to run away from their life and run away from reminders of their life, run away from the pain because it was too much to handle. And her whole process of trying to race away from this darkness and all the while asking God, like, where are you? Why aren't you fixing this? And then eventually having the courage to come back home and realizing that the real healing and the real work God does is when we are brave enough to face the dark and face the depths of our pain and not run from it. And honestly, a lot of that was just, she was sort of a character that represented what my natural impulse is. Like my natural impulse would be to outrun everything. And I learned very early on, as we talked about with the anniversaries and all of that, there's no way to heal if you're trying to outrun the pain. Like it will just resurface. You're just prolonging the healing and you have to face it in full. And that's a really hard thing to do. But that's where the song came from. And then truthfully, I just wrote the lyrics and then I gave them to dad on like a yellow legal pad and was like, hey, (laughs) I don't know if this is any good, but if there's anything to it, I would love to hear it to a melody. Like if you have time to put a melody to it. And so he looked at it and tweaked a couple things and he wrote the beautiful melody that it is now. And then very kindly invited me into the studio to help be a part of the production process. And basically he wanted it to sound the way I wanted it to sound. It was a very unique experience. It was very sweet. And I think something I just never expected to do with him. And I think it also for him was a tangible way to help me heal. Because I mean, you know, part of what has broken my heart is watching my parents because they just would give anything in the world to have fixed that for me. And of course, there's nothing to fix. So I think it was very meaningful for him too. Yeah. Well, speaking of your mom for a minute, she wrote the foreword and I was a puddle of tears by like the second paragraph (laughs) because she's also a writer too. Yes. 
I mean, I love that maybe unintentionally, but it was kind of a family thing. And I think that's also reflective of your healing journey because you do need that support system around you. You do. I so hope and pray that people listening have that. And truly, my heart breaks if for some reason that isn't the case. And I would just continue to tell you to pray and research and try to find whether it's family or friends or like me, other women that had walked in my same shoes that I didn't know until all this happened. And just pray that God leads you to those people who can be your support system because it's too much to do on your own. It's just too much. It helps you move forward. What I love about Racing the Dark is that's our natural instinct. When we hit something that's really heavy and difficult, the knee-jerk reaction is to run away from it. Because if we run away from it, then we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to deal with the emotions that come with it. Right. But then you become stuck. Yes. And maybe just emotionally and mentally, but then physically you become stuck as well, eventually, if you're not dealing with it. Whereas if you face it and you learn to process the emotions and sort them all out, it allows you to move forward again. Yeah. Listen, grief, it takes a lot of courage to grieve and not run away. I think that courage comes in very small doses sometimes. You just do the best you can and you take one more tiny step toward painful places. I mean, it's like physical therapy. Like when you injure a part of your body and you go to physical therapy, they push the part that hurts because they have to build Mm -hmm. it back. And truthfully, grieving is no different. You have to learn how and when you can handle pushing the parts that hurt and do that with sound community and do that with the Lord. That's when real healing and strength comes back. And I love the way you write with both your book and the song. It's a progressive moving forward. Like you can feel Mm. the hope. You can feel that healing happening. I just love that because it's not about why is this happening to me? You know, I should be over this by now. Why am I still feeling like this? That's grief. It's going to hit in waves. You might think, oh, I thought I was over that. And then something will trigger it. It comes back. You don't reach a finite destination with grief. Definitely. Yeah. There's no like fix it moment. There's no like I'm done, you know, and it's <laughs> yeah three steps forward, two steps back until you get a little bit more stability. And that's unfortunately just the way that I, the way that it goes. Yeah. So before you go, we have to talk about Nashville. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Is there a story behind the name Nashville and what is the organization's mission? So Nashville is a women's apparel brand. My co-founder and I, Brooke, started building it July of 2018, which was a few months before Ben's accident. Really, the idea stemmed initially from her story of being an adoptive mom and her heart just sort of being captivated by foster care and adoption and birth moms and that whole world. So she wanted to have a brand that celebrated Nashville as a city because everyone loves it and we're both natives and serve to sort of connect and empower women more from a place of love and faith than necessarily, you know, some of the other political female empowerment movements and groups and things like that. So when we started building it, we wanted a few more missions. And when you go to scripture, it says all throughout, take care of orphans and widows. And so we decided that would be our second mission, honestly, knowing very little about how that would work or how to even connect to serve widows. I mean, I was 28 and she was 30 at that point. Then we added human trafficking because Ben worked for the Davidson County, uh, which is Nashville, DA's office. And he handled a lot of the drug and trafficking cases. And he said, you know, 
with all the tourism and growth, like Nashville is a very bad hub for trafficking. And if you want to really affect some women in very traumatic places in the city, this would be a good mission to look into and learn about and connect with some of these organizations. And so we started building it in July and then been passed in September. Then we ended up pushing the launch a little bit, but it was probably six weeks after he died, we ended up launching it's just the whole story and all of the mission, everything about it is so woven into both of our personal lives that it just kind of feels like we sell merchandise in order to financially give back to nonprofits serving those three groups. And we use our platform and voice to sort of tell the stories of those people and advocate for them and sort of be a middleman between the public who want to help and don't know how and the nonprofits who are doing the really hard work. And so... That's what we do. And all of our clothing is online. We also host a podcast called She's in the City because we have so many followers from all over the country. We didn't just want to pigeonhole it to Nashville and do a lot like you do. We just tell stories of women who have struggled, who have overcome and just want to break the isolation that we can feel, especially as women, when we go through hard things because no one's really alone in anything. And so we want to share those voices of hope in She's in the City. So that's sort of the two parts of what we do. I love that. Where can people learn more about Nashville and your podcast? So you can go to nashville.com. It's also at Nashville on Instagram and Facebook. And then the podcast is She's in the City. So it's also linked to our Nashville.com page. It's on Instagram as well and Apple and Spotify and all the things. So what is your favorite compliment you've ever received? <laughs> um, I feel like this is one of these things where your mind goes blank. <laughs> Not to always come back to the subtitle of the book and the whole point of the book, but I think that in the last couple of years, you know, the number of people who I've had a conversation with or gotten a message from that just say thank you because I had no hope until I heard this story. To me, that is the greatest compliment and the greatest purpose for my grief and my loss, of course, but for my life. People saying that and offering that to me has made me realize there's nothing greater than feeling like your life pours in and inspires someone else to keep going, you know, and keep hoping. Because my story's public, I've been able to hear that from people. And it's really amazing. I mean, you want to talk about purpose in life. If a glimmer of something that's happened to me allows somebody else to hang on to hope for another day or month or year, then I mean, what's better than that? And what we were talking about earlier with that support, you know, in a way, you're the one lending that support. And that community of support is so important in any kind of healing. Yeah, it's crucial. What is a compliment you can give yourself right now? I know that in going through all this, I am much more compassionate and tender and patient with people than I used to be. And that is truly one of, if not the best, spiritual fruit of going through something so tragic is that it softens your heart for people and enables you to walk with more compassion. It may have taken me decades to learn some of that, you know, in life had something hard never happened to me. Well, and that's also life in general. If everything was perfectly sunshine and rainbows all the time, you wouldn't learn anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I also personally think it would be kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's as <laughs> idyllic as it you know? sounds in our head. Exactly. Well, any last words that you want to share with listeners? I mean, I think it all goes back to hope, truly. 
I stand by it. Good days or bad days, life happens 24 hours at a time. I think there's a lot of buzzwords about living present and being present. That's a good thing. But I think that it has a profound impact on your life and your happiness and your connectivity to others when you really do try to live one day at a time, at least in a way that enables you to stay rooted and grateful in where you are and not overwhelmed about where you're not or where you want to get or whatever. I'm a very, very forward thinking person and a fast moving person. And all of this in a very real way makes you realize today could be your last, but also it just makes me so much more grateful and aware. I move a little slower through the day than I used to. And that's a really good thing. So I would say, try as hard as you can to live your life 24 hours at a time. I think there's a lot of blessing in that. Truly being in the moment. Yeah, we miss so much when we're just blazing through life. Yeah. And that's as a society. That's what we do. It's hustle, hustle, hustle on the go all the time. I know. Always in a rush to get somewhere. And why? Right. (laughs) There's value in knowing that this might be your last day, not to be morbid, but it could be a reality. Yep. Absolutely. Something that you mentioned about just living 24 hours at a time, when you're in the thick of that grief or trauma, sometimes that's all you can handle and that's okay. Yes, it is. It is all you can handle most Mm -hmm. of the time. Because I went through this as well. I remember when the tornado happened 10 days after that, the pandemic started shutting everything down. But I saw a lot of people pivoting their businesses and my business was affected as well financially. And so I'm like, oh, I need to figure out a way to pivot this. I need to figure out additional income sources and that kind of thing. But I hadn't at that time processed what I had just been through. So I had no mental energy to plan anything and it made me feel worse. Yes. Just knowing that there are moments of rest and those moments of rest and recovery is very important and to not compare yourself to other people because they have a different journey. Yes. Everyone will grieve differently at a different pace in a different way. And it is not helpful to try to make your process or grief look like theirs. Comparison is not helpful. I will say... I fully approve of trying to steal the positive things from other people. You know, if they do something or handle something well, I mean, take it on, see if it works for you. But comparing to put yourself down is going to do absolutely nothing to help you. And adding to what you just said, if you glean from other people's journey, that's great. But if you're not mentally there yet, don't pressure yourself to be like, I really, really want to do this. Why am I not able to make that happen? Take the time to rest and recover And then revisit that idea. Yes. When you're ready. Yes. Rest is crucial. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my goodness. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation. And I just appreciate you supporting the book and sharing my story with everyone. And I hope someone finds hope in it that really needs it right now. Thank you for tuning in. I would love to know what your favorite part of this episode was. Tag me at Finding Strength of Heart on Instagram or Facebook. Or you can email me at findingstrengthofheart at gmail.com. Until next time, take good care of you, and we'll chat soon.